Okay, warriors, you are listening to Unqualified Therapists. Remember, stay wild and weird. Hey, warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah. We started this podcast because mental health is complicated and the stigma surrounding it can make us feel alone. So we are here to share authentic stories in order to normalize and prioritize mental health. We believe in professional therapy. We both use it on our own healing journeys, but we also know it isn't one size fits all. So we are here to provide tools from our own experiences, as well as those from our guests and professionals that come on the show. Thank you for being here as we navigate the complexities of mental health and mental illness together. Remember, hold on, warriors. We're going to make it. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. Tonight, we have a special guest. Well, I don't know when you're listening, but we are recording tonight. And we have Holly with us, who is a friend of mine and has been for years. We have spent some time talking on Messenger and texting about mental health and you know, the difficulties and getting the help that you need for loved ones. So Holly is here today to share with us her story Um, and a little bit about her journey and how she was able to get that help for her loved one and also like kind of the roadblocks in that way, in the way. Thank you for coming on. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Amy. Hi, Sarah. Like I said, long time listener, first time caller. So, (laughs) so excited to be here. Um, The reason I wanted to come on was basically to emphasize how terrible the mental health care is in our country. Um, I wanted to tell my mom's story with psychosis and depression. And essentially, if you guys had six hours, that would be ideal. (laughs) Let's rewind back to 2020, which, you know, was everybody's favorite year, you know, with the lockdowns and COVID and all of that stuff. I feel like for my mom, that isolation, and you're combining that with somebody who was already suffering from anxiety, OCD, and she was also a total germaphobe. And now you drop a virus in here that, you know, people are convinced will just kill you and nobody knows why and nobody knows how to treat it. So, I mean, you know, we've all been there. We know what that was like. So as I'm talking to her, I'm just noticing changes. You know, I can't put my finger on it, but she's just not her. And you know, she was just acting bizarre at times, but it wasn't out of completely out of control. And then we get into about September, 2020. And at this point, her and my dad are arguing a lot and having a lot of trouble because she's trying to tell him something's wrong with him. I mean, she's at the point that she is convinced that my dad wants to murder her. Um, she is convinced that he is laundering money. He has several girlfriends. Um, just anything outlandish you could think of, she's convinced that he's guilty of it. So this is my first experience with any of this stuff. And I'm thinking like, 
oh my God, what the hell is going on? Because I know that this isn't true. My dad called one of her, she also has MS and he called her MS doctors who have treated her for 30 some years. So they know her and they talked to her on the phone and they told my dad, they said, you've got to get her to a hospital. She is in a severe mental crisis. You know, she needs help. Even if you have to trick her, get her to a hospital. So that's what he did. He took her to St. Clair and I know you guys are fans. I'm not. Okay. So, I mean, that's totally fine because we've each had our own experiences, different places. And you know, from my story, I'm not a fan of many of the hospitals around here. So yeah. Yes. And my experience is just that, just my experience, one one person. So yes, absolutely. There's, there's varying different experiences at all the different places. So he took her to St. Clair and he had to basically trick her to get in the ER and it took a security guard to get her in the ER because this is how like, it was almost like a manic phase. You know, they take her to the ER. Now I have to be there because again, now I'm the one she trusts. She doesn't trust him. So we sit in the ER for hours and finally somebody sees her and essentially they just said, you know, we don't have time for this. You need to seek outpatient um, psychiatric help. It'll be about like six weeks till you get an appointment. Because at this point, she hadn't been sleeping. You know, she's just, you. I mean, you know what like a manic phase is like. She's, she's just roaming around the house and just all yeah. the energy. I bet they didn't have a bed. That's probably what it was. Well, of course not. Yeah, of exactly. Of course not. But I mean, the nurse, or the, the psychiatric person, whoever she was, she was just so rude. She was like, oh, I don't yeah. have time for this. Mm-hmm. You know? So let's fast forward not even 24 hours. Besides, she wants to see her doctor who's at McGee. So I take her to McGee's ER. I tell McGee, I said, look, I don't know what's going on here. She's having some type of breakdown like she needs help. I don't know what else to do. McGee ends up 302ing her, not even 24 hours later. Can you just quickly explain what a 302 is for people who might not know? It's basically where a psychiatrist determines that you are either a danger to yourself or somebody else, and they basically admit you against your will. So, you know, they have the power by law to admit you. And like, I couldn't have gotten her out. My dad couldn't have gotten her out. She's now like their property. I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It is like their property for 72 hours. The only people that can do that is a doctor and the spouse or a parent if they're underage. Okay. So I'm sorry. So then, so then the 302 happens and then they, um, they decide she needs to be in Western psych, which I agree with that. She ended up staying at McGee for a week, just literally being baby fat because she still was pretty manic. She wouldn't sleep. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anyone not sleep. You know, she'd fall asleep for an hour and I'd be like, oh good, this is good. She'll be asleep for hours. No, up you know, and then just going and going and going and going. So then she got transferred to Western Psych and she was on like, because at this point she was pretty functional. Um, She was 69 at this point. Um, She could function well. So she was just on a regular floor of Western Psych. Since it was still COVID, only I could visit her. So my dad couldn't visit her. And again, she thought my dad was a psycho at this point. So she didn't want him visiting her. But anyway, like, I could only visit her and she would just roam the hallways. She would call me at all hours of the night. I had to unplug my phone because she wouldn't stop. And um, she, they started her on medication there. She didn't want to take it. They threatened doing injections 
And then once they threatened the injection, she took the meds by mouth. So that worked. They saw some improvement. She was there for three weeks. And she was able to be discharged home. And so she came home in November of 2020. And from there, because we're still in 2020, all of her visits with her psychiatrist were virtual, which I don't like at all. I mean, that I'm not a fan. So she would see these psychiatrists probably about every three weeks. And, you know, they just kept saying, oh, well, we need to up the meds. We need to down this med. We need to change. We need... So every single medication change, you got to give it a couple weeks to work. So it was just a constant battle because nothing was working. Nothing was working well. Things would take the edge off, but the symptoms would still be there. Did they give a diagnosis at that point? I believe it was psychosis of unknown origin because this was her first episode of psychosis wow. okay. in 69 years. But it is genetically, it is in the family. So, you know, it's not shocking, but, you know, she was fine. Never anything previous that was serious or anything like that. Um. So she comes home and, you know, she starts getting along better with my dad and saying that she doesn't believe these things anymore. But part of me thinks she was just saying it just off her back and stuff like that, because she would call me and be like, well, well, your dad did this and your dad did that. I'm like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So that was obviously frustrating. And it was frustrating for my dad, obviously, um, so, it, you know, we're just going through months and months of these virtual appointments, this, that, and the other thing. And just medication was not helping. I mean, no matter what you did, up the dose as high as you can go, down the dose, change everything. And they had her on, um, they had her on Ativan three times a day in the end, but all that did was make her a zombie. Depression's worsening. She hits this point in, let's summer-ish of 2021. She starts to develop more depression type symptoms. So it's not so much psychosis, it's more depression. And she doesn't want to leave the house. She doesn't want to do anything, like just no enjoyment. He decides he has to get his bathroom redone upstairs so that it would be handicapped accessible so she could use it. But she could never tolerate um, people working in her house because that obviously was something that would trigger her and set her off. He decides that she needs it like a nursing home, assisted living while he gets the bathroom done to also give him a break because i mean i don't know how he did it honestly there was so much you know it was so much to deal with so he puts her in an assisted living that also guaranteed they had nursing care but as with everywhere understaffed um so she was in there and she was still experiencing like psychotic type symptoms I don't know if the change in scenery wasn't good either, but she ended up getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and she was scared to push her help button because she thinks that they, because again, I don't know who they are. She thinks that they get mad at her if she hits her button. So she doesn't hit her button for help. She falls going to the bathroom and breaks her wrist and her wrist is broken. And she's also got like a slight break in a bone in her neck. Nothing bad, but it's a break. It's a break. So she leaves Presby with her wrist in a cast, one of those stupid freaking neck things. So now you've got like a psychotic patient who's like super weak, just super depressed. She's got a broken wrist and neck collar that she can't take off for six months or six weeks, I'm sorry, and has to sleep like this, you know? Oh my gosh. 
So they tell my dad, okay, we can handle this. We'll keep a good eye on her. We'll check her every 30 minutes. Well, sure as shit. She's back there for 10 days and she's watching a movie with the nurse and the nurse had to leave to take care of another patient, which is understandable. She gets up to get something, falls and breaks a hip. Oh my gosh. They take her to McGee for the broken hip. They did a minor surgery on the hip and then the goal was to get her rehabbed and all of a sudden she's having a lot of like psychotic type symptoms and she's saying she can't eat. She's saying every time she eats, she chokes. Every time she eats, she's going to throw up. So we're at the point that we're cutting up her food like smaller than you would for a kid. It would take me an hour to feed her like a tablespoon of food saying like, okay, what do we do now? And they're like, well, you know, they didn't really seem concerned that she wasn't eating, which was kind of bothersome, but she was just like continually losing weight. One day my dad texted me in the morning. He said, she's unresponsive. Like she will not speak. She will not like open her eyes, you know, nothing. So basically at this point she had shut down. She became catatonic. Wow. So if you've never seen anybody in a catatonic state, it's the creepiest thing because they're looking at you, but they're looking through you. Every now and then they might mumble something but they're not really there. The psychiatrists at McGee were like, okay, she's catatonic. And she, at this point, she was so rigid because they get real rigid when they're catatonic. Um, she was so rigid and there was obviously no hope for getting her to do any physical therapy for her hip or rehab or anything. So then she got a bed sore in the midst of all this because she wasn't moving and she was catatonic sitting in a bed. And the psychiatrist at McGee said, we've got to get her back to Western Psych and we want her to go there for ECT. ECT, for people that don't know, is electroconvulsive therapy. So it is not what we all think. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, as soon as somebody says it, I think of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right. and I think you're laying on a table with like a colander on your head, <laughs> and like you're shake. you know. That's what you think, it's not what it is. Dad was really on the fence about it, because again, that's what you're thinking in your head, and you're thinking, God, this is violent, this is horrible, how could you do this to somebody? But then we, we talked it over, and I said, look, he said, what could be worse than what we're looking at right now? Because you've got somebody that won't eat, won't speak, won't, you know, nothing. There's nothing. We said, you know, get her over there. And of course, now it's the bed waiting game. You've got a bed over at Western Psych. And of course, like, even though you're, you know, you're an ECT patient and they know that you need ECT based on another psychiatrist's recommendations, their team obviously has to evaluate you. You get a new team over there. They evaluate you. They have to put you through physical testing to make sure you can, you know, handle the procedure, which all makes sense. So by the time all that gets done, she gets one treatment. And after that one treatment, she developed pneumonia, got sent back to Presby, Presby's ICU. So she gets sent back to Presby's ICU, basically under the assumption of, okay, you better know what she wants, like, you know, for last wishes and whatnot. She was really sick. I mean, she's got no nutrition in her for weeks. She has a bed sore. She's got pneumonia. She has no will to fight. The IV antibiotics worked very well for her. She came out of the ICU quickly. And then she had to be in Montefiore for like three more weeks because now she's not strong enough to have ECT. All in all, it was like 160 days in the hospital system with everything. 
Wow. But so like, again, like between all these hospitals, things are blurred. Now she could finally, she was strong enough to tolerate the treatments. They had a feeding tube put in her. She was getting treatments three times a week, which is how they start them. And then they decrease it to two and then one, and then they see how you do. So the first three treatments, we saw a slight difference, more responsiveness, you know, opening your eyes, speaking, things like that. And then by the time she got about six to seven treatments in, things really started to look better. I mean, she was coming out of it and it was just the craziest thing I've ever witnessed. I mean, it's the fact that this works and how quickly it worked, I think is the other thing that really surprised me. And she got COVID in the midst of all this too. Oh my gosh. I know, like, I, you can't make this shit up. Like, seriously. Wow. <laughs> I could make this shit up if I tried. So she's, like, halfway through the treatments, because at this point, all we want is her out of there. Because it's so, like, I mean, you guys know, Western Psych is not, like, a warm and fuzzy place no, to visit. and not you at know, all. Like, you know, like, you're freaking strip searched, you mm-hmm. know? Like, you yep. have to, you can't bring your phone in. Like, so I couldn't even show her pictures of the kids. Like, nothing, you know? Um, so we just wanted her out of there and then she gets COVID. So now she has to be on the special COVID floor, isolated for like, I think that was a 10 day isolation. So no treatments cause she's isolated. So then finally she was able to finish up her treatments and then she was discharged to a rehab facility for about three weeks, two or three weeks. And she's finally been discharged home. I mean, obviously, it was quite a ride. And, you know, the other thing that I have to say that I noticed, because at Western Psych, you get roommates. Obviously, because she had the longest stay ever in Western Psych, she had a decent amount of roommates. First roommate I met, you know, again, just the woman, unresponsive, doesn't just sits there. She was having ACT. Don't you know it? Two weeks later, she's talking away. We uh, talked about all kinds of Christmas stuff together. Another woman, my mom had as a roommate, same thing. She came in completely unresponsive, completely rigid in her bed, um, feeding tube in. She also was having ECT. But the pro, I mean, I think what makes me so frustrated is that why do you have to hit such a horrible, yeah. horrible low? Yes. In was, order yeah. to get, I mean, I get that it's not, it's not like an easy, like, oh, well, sure, have some ECT, but like, she hit such a low, low, and we begged her psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. We begged them. We said, is there anything we can do? Inpatient, anything. So she had to get that sick to finally get the treatment she needed almost three years later. So this is all from the National Institute of Mental Health's website. I just, I didn't just make it up and pull it out of my ass, um, just so everybody knows. Um, so ECT is usually considered only if a person's illness has not improved after trying other treatments like medication or psychotherapy. To be eligible for ECT, a person must have severe treatment-resistant depression or require a rapid response due to life-threatening circumstances, such as being unable to move or respond to the outside world, aka catatonic, being suicidal, or being malnourished. When they actually do the procedure, it is under general anesthetic. It, the procedure itself is very quick. It's a short acting general anesthetic, and it's also given with a muscle relaxant. So 
the person is not seizing all over the table, like what you're, you know, what people think. Um, so basically what they do is they go in just like any type of um, procedural room and they put them under the anesthetic and then they put electrodes at certain places on their head. Then they send an electric current through the brain, which causes seizure activity. And the seizure activity lasts under a minute. The anesthesia actually ensures that the patient does not experience pain or feel the electrical pulses. They also do, I think, hook them up to an EEG to make sure that they do have the correct seizure activity. They need to make confirm that an actual seizure has been achieved. And the weird thing about ECT and every doctor we've spoken to, every article I've read, nobody can quite pinpoint how or why it works. The electrical impulses that cause that seizure somehow reset what is causing the depression, you know, the severe symptoms. And the other half of ECT is that nobody knows how long it lasts. And we were told that from the beginning. Some people only need a couple treatments. Some people need to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. But so far, I want to say my mom's about six weeks out from her last ECT. And I mean, so far, so good. As far as side effects with ECT, the most common ones are headache, upset stomach, memory loss, muscle aches, and like disorientation or confusion, which I think is kind of, I think the disorientation or confusion, I think is just kind of a given because you were given anesthetic. So of course you're going to be disoriented and confused, but the memory loss we definitely observed. I always told everybody when they were asking about how my mom was doing at that point, I said, it's like 50 first dates, that movie. So every time she would have a treatment, she'd come back from the treatment and she'd like, she'd ask my dad, well, why am I here? Well, remember you fell, you broke this, you did that. Like you're in Western Sight every time. And it was, it took a couple weeks before that stopped. Next day, the memory would come back and she'd be okay. But there's still some memory loss we noticed, but again, it's better than the alternative. Yeah, definitely. I think there is such a stigma behind it. Even I experienced my own feelings of stigma around it. At one point when I was in, because I also had treatment resistant major depressive disorder, had suicidal ideations and my therapist said to me, I think you need to try something like ECT or ketamine therapy. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Cause I had those same visions in my head of being shocked and it being this barbaric procedure and losing my memory and it making me catatonic doing the opposite of what it's intended to do. But I think, you know, hearing this story and knowing the side effects and things now and the the way that it's supposed to work, it sounds like it works just the same as the ketamine therapy, the psilocybin therapy, ECT. They're all doing the same thing. They're resetting, Mm -hmm. they're reigniting those nerve endings, those firing processes of the parts of your brain that produce happiness that have died off and are just existing there, not working. And so they're just making them work again. And so there shouldn't be the stigma behind it. And I agree with you. I think it is the anesthesia for the confusion because I 
as everybody knows, I went through 8 million surgeries. And for two years, I didn't know what day it was, where I was, what was happening. Cause I had surgery every like four months. I could, right. my brain fog was so bad. Yeah. And it was cause I was going under general anesthesia for hours at a time over and over and over again. And yeah. so I think that wreaked havoc on my mind and my body for a good year after. I mean, it took like two years actually for it to yeah. totally leave my system. I'd be interested though to know we're not going back but I'm saying I would be interested to know if you would have been actually been able to have it because we tried for so long with Scott I really think it's that catatonic state is really what they're looking for after you even said Mm -hmm. about her roommates that was the thing that they all had in common and that's the bullshit that you have to get to that point before you can get the treatment and Mm -hmm. I don't know I don't know what what it is about that that they don't want to prescribe it or they don't want to like you know advocate for it I think therapists do but psychiatrists might not and the hospitals might not you know it's like this last resort well you know last resort is like they're dead so let's try this first you know but Holly I didn't realize it was three full she just got done that's three Mm -hmm. full years of this yeah now that she's back home does she have any recollection of everything that went on does she understand it does she remember it what is her frame of mind now and how is her relationship with your father okay so she really doesn't remember much which is kind of bizarre she doesn't she doesn't remember thinking the things she thought about my dad when she was originally hospitalized in 2020 She kind of remembers bits and pieces. She does not remember any of the injuries. She doesn't remember breaking her wrist. She doesn't remember the fall that broke her hip. She knows these things happened. She does not remember it. I don't know. You know, the psychiatrist's assumption was she's blocking it out. You know, like it was so traumatic that her brain blocked it out. When all of this happened in 2020, And even into 2021, you know, I realized at that point, I'm never going to have her back. Like, you know, your, your mom is your best friend. And I lost her. The person that was standing in front of me was not my mother. The mental illness had done so much to her that she just wasn't the same. So I had to mourn the loss of that person before I could even begin to process anything I guess I I don't know I I mean it was an absolute nightmare I mean there's no sugarcoating it it was just fucking ridiculous he was so depressed and so uninterested in everything for years after the ECT she smiled you have no idea what a big deal that was for me and my dad we were like she smiled it wasn't like you had to like force it out of her she just smiled and she can engage now and she's interested and she wants to watch TV again and she wants to see pictures and she calls me now and before you know she wouldn't pick up a phone to call anybody because she was just miserable she's totally fine with my dad she can't believe she thought the things he's telling her that you know so she's totally fine with my dad I mean he's taking care of her day and night she's not back to who she was is what you're saying no no, but she's definitely, I don't think she ever will be. Yeah. Um, but she's definitely way better than, you know, any shred of personality that she's been in these last couple of years. This is the best I've seen her. It's the happiest I've seen her in 
I don't even know how long, at least 20 years. Has the psychiatrist or anyone made mention if it's a rare occasion that a diagnosis like this would happen at 69 years old? That's just mind-blowing to me. Agreed. Agreed. It was mind-blowing to every doctor. Clearly, then, it's not a, a, a normal thing or not normal. It's not. It's not a um, regular no. occurrence. No, because typically, you know, when you when you have somebody that struggles with any type of psychiatric illness, mental illness, you see it in younger age, 20-ish. You know, oh, they've been in the hospital every couple years. Nothing. And again, like I said, she had her quirks in hindsight. A lot of things make more sense now. The full-blown psychosis did not hit until age 69. So do you feel like, because you said it's the happiest she's been in 20 years, do you feel like there was depression that maybe wasn't undiagnosed all those years? Yep, absolutely. And it sounds like COVID was the trigger because it's it was the weirdest, is the weirdest thing that I think we've anybody's lived through. I often said, like, I say this, you know, like, not that I really mean like that. I'm glad he wasn't here, but I, I said it a lot. Like, I'm glad that Scott wasn't here for that because the psychosis and what he would have done and the things he would have said and where he would have gone. And I just can't even imagine because there's, it's such a weird fucked up thing that happened to whole, the whole world. And there's just yes. so many ways for you to get paranoid and so many ways yes. for you to go down rabbit holes and so many ways for you to believe yes. that everybody's out to get you. And so I think that that is super s- triggering for psychosis. Yes. And that's what I think too. You know, I mean, my dad doesn't a hundred percent agree that COVID did it, but I, I just feel like it was the straw that broke the camel's back. When the lockdown happened, we were all freaked out. I mean, I think everybody across the board was freaked out. She would drive by my house with the car windows up and a mask on to see my kids. Because that's how scared she was. Feel like, and, and like you said, there's so many things to make you paranoid. That's all that was on TV constantly, all day and all night. This person died, that person died. You're going to die from this. You're going to get it from here. So you think about that. And I think that's what really, really was too much. Is she on any medication now? She is. She's on Effexor and Zyprexa. And that's been probably, I'd say, the best combo she's been on this whole time. What it's making me think about a lot is that in hindsight, hearing this story and thinking about COVID and thinking about all of the people who were experiencing things like this, it absolutely breaks my heart. I was thinking more during that time about people who were trapped in domestic violence situations, you know, whether it was children or partners, and I was really hurting and aching for them, but I didn't think at the time about people who were experiencing mental breaks and how impossible it would be to get treatment when hospitals are being overrun by this Mm -hmm. unprecedented, unexplainable illness. Mm -hmm. Having to try to find mental health care (laughs) for someone during that time, having to find mental health care for someone not during COVID is fucking impossible. Add COVID on finding a bed then. No, like it's just, and so when you were saying, I don't want to say that I'm glad he wasn't here, but I knew what you were going to say because I was thinking the same thing. Like, it's better that he didn't have to live through that experience because he wouldn't have made it. He wouldn't have made it. No, Mm -mm. it would have been something awful. And the psychotic breaks are so hard 
Holly to watch because it's like you look at the person and they're looking they look the same but they're like mm -hmm. not that person at all and there's mm -hmm. no talking there's you cannot say anything that's going to convince them otherwise and that's just yep. so hard that's so so hard and I can't even imagine three years to figure it out that's a long yep. journey and it's amazing what you and your dad did for her and I just I'm, I'm so grateful that you know she's come back around but I love at the end she's the happiest yes. she's been yeah she's happy you know I mean it's it's great so there's a lot of things that you told us that I think I learned and I'm sure our listeners learned and Sarah as well what is like the big takeaway that you want people to know from your story oh my god that's a hard question my biggest thing is that mental health care is train wreck in this country and, and you guys say it enough on here I know your listeners know I know you guys know and I just feel like my story illustrates that you have to get to such a low low before you can actually even be hospitalized you know you come to the hospital having a heart attack and nobody's going to tell you well sorry we don't have any beds but good luck with that hope you hope you make it through so it's not viewed in the same way which again you guys know that it can be so detrimental to your physical health, but it's not treated same way that other physical ailments are because it's mental. Well, we are so appreciative of you sharing this because, yeah, we say it all the time on here, but that's just our two voices. We exactly. need to hear all of the voices speaking up to say, this is fucked up and somebody needs to do yes. something about it. And so yes. we're very thankful for you doing that on here for us today. I also want to say thank you for helping to remove stigma around ECT therapy. So that's right. a huge block for some people. It was one for me. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have society helping us to shun something that could be a life-saving measure for them. Right. I appreciate your voice because again, like Sarah said, we're just we're just saying the same thing over and over the two of us back and forth to each other out into the void here. So it is so good to have new voices on here with new experiences, you know, because people could say to me, well, that was your experience with the hospital or that was only your experience or like your husband mm -hmm. was untreatable or whatever. But when other people experience that then it gives like it validity to it, you know, that, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a fucking mess. And, yes. you know, we need to do something about it. Still have no idea what that is, but talking about it and bringing it to light, I think is the first step. So I just am really appreciative of you for your vulnerability and sharing your story with us. Thank you again so very much, Holly, for joining us today. If you find yourself or a family member or loved one in a crisis, please reach out to 988. It is a newer number here in the United States, so I just want to make sure we remind people that that does exist. And I just want to say to all of you out there, Holly included, that are caring for loved ones with their illness, thank you. It is a heavy lift and it is a hard thing to do and it is appreciated by your loved one even if they can't say it and it's appreciated by the whole family and all their friends and it's just an amazing thing for all of you out there caring for someone with a mental illness that is a hard fucking job yes thank you holly and warriors we hope that you are having a great week and that you learned something new today we hope that you stay wild and weird warriors we love you this episode was brought to you by sarah simone and amy baumgartner 
theme song and other music provided by Epidemic Sound. All episodes are mixed, mastered, and produced by me, Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this one, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash unqualifiedtherapistsinc. Or share us with a friend, relative, coworker, hairstylist, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Sharing us not only helps keep the mics on, but it furthers our mission in removing the stigma. If you have a mental health journey you'd like to share, email us at unqualifiedtherapists at gmail.com or reach out to us on our website, www.unqualifiedtherapists.com. Until next time, hold on, warrior. We're gonna make it. Oh, yeah.